0: Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon text is from James chapter 1. I'll read verses 9 through 11. These are the words of God. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance, per- appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Would you pray with me? Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your presence and come and sit under your word. We pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And we ask this because we know that you are our strength and our redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue to chip our way through the book of James. We come to uh, this next little section. One thing to, um, as you read through the book of James, James has often been compared to the book of Proverbs. um, And sometimes it seems like, as you're reading through James, it seems like James is throwing things out at you uh, that are disconnected from the rest of of what has come before. As though there's not really a sustained argument that James is presenting. One of the things that I want to encourage us to do as we come to this passage is to keep in mind, actually, what James has already said in the first first section, as he's exhorted people to count it all joy when they encounter various trials, and exhorted them to come and seek wisdom from the Lord, but not to do it in doubting, but to do it in faith. All of this we need to keep in mind, then, as we come to this next section. God frequently uses the foolish things of this world to shame the worldly wise. He often uses the humble things to accomplish his purposes. We know this from the very beginning of history as God, as God creates the world and sets things in motion as uh, Adam and Eve sin and, and they fall and they separate the, um, the human race from God. Since that time, God has used the foolish things. He's used the lowly things to accomplish his purposes. Just some examples to call to mind. Think of stammering Moses, uh, this man who's, who's a shepherd in the wilderness, who is unable to speak clearly. And God says, you're the one that I want to go and stand before Pharaoh, the greatest king in all the world at the time. And I want you to stand before him and tell him that he needs to let my people go. Stammering Moses, this man that, that could not put together a sentence, he, he felt, before, if, if he was going to go and stand before Pharaoh. God uses Moses to deliver the people of Israel. God uses Rahab, the prostitute, to bring down the, the walls of Jericho by allowing the, the spies to come in and, and rescue them. And then she ends up becoming part of the line of Jesus. But she was a prostitute. Gideon's 300 a very, very small force that ends up, through God's grace, routing an entire army of the Midianites. Young David, this young shepherd boy, youngest of all of his father's sons, and yet he's the one that God chooses to take down the giant Goliath. God preserves a remnant of his people in Babylon after their idolatry and their, after the whole kingdom falls. God preserves a small remnant. Think of Daniel and his three friends in Babylon. And it's those that he uses then to bring back to Jerusalem and to set up the time for the coming of Jesus. Think of a young and seemingly disreputable Mary, the mother of Jesus. And of course, think of the Son of God lying as a helpless infant in a stinking feed trough. God regularly works this way by using the the foolish things of this world so that we can clearly see that he is the one who is at work in and through his people. We ourselves have nothing to boast in. God is accomplishing his purposes through any means that he chooses, and often he chooses through the meek, the lowly, the, the seemingly foolish things of this world. And this is where God surprises us yet again. Once we, have got it, we think we've got it figured out in our heads that, okay, we're not supposed to boast. God uses the foolish things of this world. Then we come to this section in James chapter 1, and James explicitly commands us, To boast. The role of a Christian is not simply to give glory to God by passively not boasting in himself, but rather Christians are to rejoice and glory and boast. This is something that Christians are commanded to do, to boast in the Lord and in the privilege of being called sons of God. We live in a time in our world where uh, the, the world likes to tell people to check your privilege, right? Check your privilege at the door. And this is not at all what James has in mind. James says, no, you need to embrace and boast in your privilege. That privilege is not in and of yourself. It is a privilege of being called sons of God, being called children of God. So let's look at this passage. We're gonna, I'm going to spend a little bit of time um, looking at the, the way this passage is laid out. And there's a couple different interpretations to look at, particularly in the second um, exhortation that James gives, and then we'll go from there into some more application and, and understanding what this all means. So first, look at verse 9 with me. James says that the lowly, or your translation might say poor or humble, the lowly brother should glory, or we could also translate that boast, in his exaltation. What is exaltation? Exaltation is being lifted up, being, being lifted up and treated in a kingly manner. And So the lowly of this world, the lowly brother, the lowly brother, the poor brother, the downcast brother is supposed to glory or boast in his being lifted up in a kingly manner before the king of kings. And there are several reasons for this. Why would James give this sort of an exhortation? Several reasons for this. First, there is no partiality with God, Uh, We find this in several passages uh, throughout the Old and New Testament. I've got a couple New Testament references there in your notes if you'd like to look at those. There's no partiality with God. God does not look at persons and evaluate them and evaluate whether or not he is going to choose them, whether or not he is going to bestow his grace upon them based on their worth, based on what they have accomplished. And because of this, the poor are at no disadvantage in receiving God's favor. This is something that is, um, in many ways, countercultural. This is, in many ways, against the the way that the world tends to work. Through millennia, through centuries, the world has despised the poor. The the world has despised those who are outside of those who have power. This is just the way that the world works. And God, in being, being the kind of just judge who does not look at men with partiality, um, busts that system. He says, no, it doesn't It doesn't matter in terms of what you have accomplished or what your worth is about whether or not I will choose you. God chooses according to his own good pleasure. There's no partiality with God. And this also means that there's no partiality with him in his judgment as he passes judgment over people. People are judged not because of their worth, but because of how they, how they do come before God, whether they serve him rightly. He judges not their accomplishments in the sense of, um, in, a, in the sense of what they have gained, but rather in their actions and whether their heart was lined up with his ways. There's no partiality with God. And so the poor are at no disadvantage. And so this is one reason then why, why James says to, uh, to the poor to exalt, to boast in their exaltation. There is no partiality with God. This is something for them to rejoice in. When God grants grace, there is great hope in the glories to come and a great contentment that overcomes the meanest of circumstances. So the poor is able, the poor brother that James identifies here, is able to rejoice and exalt and boast in what God has done for him, even though his circumstances may not have yet changed. Even though he may still be poor, even though he may still be outcast in the eyes of the world. He can, he can glory in what God has done in and through him. Secondly, James is writing to Christians who are likely undergoing persecution. So remember that James, this this is probably a very early letter um, at, in the time of the apostles. Uh, perhaps the very earliest letter that was written. Um, and it likely is sent out as as Christian Jews are fleeing Jerusalem because of the persecution that the Jewish uh, authorities were, were putting upon the Christians. So James is writing to Christians that are fleeing Jerusalem, uh, that have been displaced, that have probably lost everything. And so they are, he's writing to encourage them. And in the midst of that encouragement, he's writing to them to boast in what God has done, in their exaltation. While to the world, this persecution being displaced In this way, it seems like humiliation. For the Christian, these kinds of trials for righteousness' sake are a blessing. And as James has already told us, they are to be counted as joy. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 when he gives what we know as the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. um, for, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Um, Throw a party when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the Christian attitude. And so James is writing to these Christians and encouraging them. Exalt in, rejoice in, boast in what God is doing in you as you face these trials, as you look at these trials. Trials for a Christian really are, in many ways, a promotion. When God grants trials to a Christian, in one sense, we, I think we should think of this as a promotion. You, uh, um, one analogy that I think is really helpful is um, you, if you're in second grade, you do second grade level work, and then when you finish second grade level work, you graduate and you get promoted to third grade level work. And the same is true for us in our Christian life. God is sanctifying us, and, and we, if we remember back earlier at the beginning of uh, James, look at verse uh, 4. Or, but let's back up to verse 3. Knowing So, count it all joy, knowing all, all these trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience, or steadfastness, have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. God is working on bringing Christians, bringing his people up into a perfect man, into a full maturity, and that means that as these trials come, that we are to count as joy, we are to see them as a promotion to the next level. When a new set of trials comes before you as a Christian, this is God uh, saying, you've leveled up. You're, you're on to the next level as he brings you more and more to that state of full maturity. So this is, this is why then James, I think, says to the lowly brother, to the poor brother, um, boast in your exaltation boast in what God is doing to you as God is leveling you up, as God is bringing you up, as he is granting you the grace of salvation, and then drawing you more and more to himself in your sanctification. We'll get into that more later on. For the second part, the second exhortation in this passage, verse 10, this is what James says, but the rich in his humiliation, and we'll just pause right there, you'll notice that that phrase is lacking a verb, if you look at it, the rich in his humiliation. The implication there is that he is supposed to. The rich is supposed to glory or boast in this. Um, using the same verb in the previous from the previous verse, he's to glory or boast. While the poor was to boast in his exaltation, the rich is to boast in his humiliation. There are two primary ways that this uh, part of the passage has been understood. Um, commentators are divided on this, and and have been for centuries. In one view, the rich here refers especially to those who are not only wealthy in a material sense, but also wealthy um, in terms of a, in the social sense. They are powerful. They are those who are in places of authority. Um, they are wielding um, that authority. And then specifically, they are the ones who are oppressing and persecuting the Christians. One place to, to see this and um, to make this argument is to look ahead at chapter 2, verse 6 where James identifies the rich specifically as those who oppress you and drag you into the courts. And so in this view, when James here says the rich, he's identifying those who are the enemies of the church, those who are persecuting the Christians that he is writing to. Again, in this view, James identifies the rich as an unbeliever in contrast to the lowly brother. So he identifies the poor as a brother, in, in verse 9. And in this instance, then, the rich he leaves uh, and does not call a brother because he is an unbeliever and is an enemy of the church. Thus, the boasting in this sense, so what does it mean then for the rich here to boast in his humiliation? The, this, this would be sort of an ironic statement that James is making. In the end, before God, when he comes and sends before God, after everything has withered away, after all of his riches and wealth and power have faded like the grass that um, is outside and is all turning crispy brown right now, after his wealth has gone like that, then the oppressor, this, this rich man, will be able to boast in the only thing that he has left, and that is his humiliation before God. That, that would be the sense that James gives here, um, if, if this is the, uh, the view of, or this is our interpretation of what he means by the rich. The other view, so that's the one view, in the other view, the rich here um, does refer to believers. This makes sense, uh, so in the first view, it makes sense, I think, contextually, if you look ahead at chapter 2, verse 6, and you bring read that back into Chapter one: The rich being those that oppress and oppress the Christians and drag them into the courts. But there's another way of looking at this that also makes sense, and and this is a little bit more immediately in the uh, as we look at the grammar of this sentence. Um, You could see that James says the rich brother, or sorry, the poor brother, the lowly brother, glory in his exaltation, but the rich. And the implication there is the rich brother. There's an ellipsis there. So James isn't saying brother, but he is intending it. The rich brother should glory in his humiliation. Okay, so this would, um, even though James here doesn't say brother, you would imply it because he is leaving it out like we do all the time as we allied things in our speech. Okay, in this view, the rich can boast in his humiliation, and he really must do so as as a means of avoiding compromise under the pressure of the world. Okay, so what what does it mean then for the rich in this view to, how does he boast in his humiliation? What would be the humiliation of a rich brother, of a rich brother in Christ? Well, we'll get into this again in more detail later, but um, suffice it to say for now, the humiliation would be a realization that he is not self-sufficient. For the rich man, for a rich man apart from Christ A rich man, his his tendency is to think that he is self-sufficient, that he doesn't need God. He has it all together. He's got his bank accounts in order. He's got his insurance policies in order. He's got his stocks in order. Everything is good. He's in control. But for a rich man who is subject to the lordship of Christ, he knows that all of that is just a gift to him. And so he is not self-sufficient. He isn't relying on himself. And that is humbling. That is his humiliation. That realization is humbling to him. Um, It may also be that because he is a Christian, he is now despised by the world because of his faith. This would also be a humiliation. While on the one hand, the rich are typically the ones that are respected and looked up to in the world. If you are a rich man and outspokenly a Christian, often that brings all kinds of um, uh, um, the world despising you and, and treating you like they normally treat the poor. Right? Like the world normally treats the poor, they start to treat the rich because of their faith. This would be another way in which the rich brother is, is humiliated. And he can boast in this. And he must boast in this in order to avoid compromising under the pressure of the world because of his wealth. While it is no sin for a Christian to be wealthy, as we heard in the exhortation this morning... Wealth does bring with it a particular temptation to rely on and grasp after worldly wealth rather than the grace of God. And this really is probably where most of us fall, uh, especially as we think in the history of the world. Uh, most of us fall in this category of being the rich brother. And so this brother needs the reminder to boast in his humiliation rather than in his earthly glory. And so that's a little bit of uh, an explanation of these, of these verses I want to take a little bit of a, um, a, a rabbit trail here and talk for a moment about the relationship between boasting and thankfulness. And this, again, relates to what we heard in the call to worship this morning. Human nature uh, throughout history lurches back and forth between finding moral fault in wealth or moral fault in poverty. At certain times and in certain cultures, one is evil and the other is considered righteous, right? There are times in, in different times in different cultures where the wealthy are considered immoral. They're evil. By, by virtue of being wealthy and by virtue of having power, they are immoral. And there are other times in other cultures where if you are poor, you are despised and outcast because there's something wrong with you for being poor. Being poor is, is gross, right? This, and, and the world goes back and forth in terms of viewing wealth as something that is inherently evil, or poverty as something that is inherently evil, and vice versa, wealth being something that is inherently good, or poverty being something that is inherently good. You see this in uh, just one example, the sort of virtue signaling that happens uh, in our culture with, um, it's it's sort of suddenly not as trendy, but it was really trendy, the the sort of hipster trend, where it was um, really virtuous to appear really authentic and poor in the way that you dressed. And and it was even better if you spent a lot of money to look like you were poor in the way that you dressed. Right? You see see the hypocrisy there. But this is the way the world works. It it finds moral fault or moral success in wealth and poverty, and it it flip-flops all the time, goes back and forth in different ways. But this is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture makes clear that both wealth and poverty bring temptations. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30. This is the, the, um, Edgar, the king says, give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be full and deny you, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches because the, the, um, the king knows if I'm rich, I will be tempted in one way. And if I'm poor, I'll be tempted in another way. The problem is not in the stuff. The problem is in my heart. The problem is in the fact that I am a sinner and am tempted to either deny God in in my fullness, in my wealth, or deny God in my poverty. That's the temptation. So both bring temptations, but at the same time, both poverty and wealth come from the Lord. Um, Hannah says in 1 Samuel 2, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. The Lord's in charge of all of that. He's the one that bestows great wealth and he's the one that takes wealth away. Job says the same thing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So wealth and and poverty both bring their own temptations. Wealth and poverty both are from the Lord. And so rather than seeing wealth or poverty as the root of man's problems, as so many would have us believe, the problems really do lie in the thanklessness of, of sinful hearts. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter six. This is where God gives the Shema to His people. He tells them to call upon Him as the Lord, their God. Gives the command to love Him with their heart, soul, and strength. If you look down at verse t- uh, verse ten, this is a warning that. Uh, Moses gives to the people. He says, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Paul also says in Romans chapter 1 that the, uh, the problem with man is, that, is not that man doesn't know God. It's that he knows God, but refuses to glorify him as God and refuses to give thanks to him as God. The problems that we have in the world, while, while the world will tell us that the problems are um, rooted in wealth or poverty, the problems of this world are actually rooted in our hearts and our ability or our um, forgetfulness to thank God for what he has given to us. Scripture teaches us over and over not to trust in the material things that we enjoy. We're not to grasp for them. And, and I think seeing both of those things together helps to understand that this is not just an exhortation, against, uh, an exhortation for those who have received a lot, who are wealthy. Right? Scripture teaches us not to trust in our wealth, but also not to grasp for the wealth. That would be covetousness. The the poor are just as easily tempted as the rich. Again, like the proverb teaches us. We're not to trust in the material things. We're not to grasp for them covetously, but we are to trust in the God who gives the material things to be enjoyed or to the God who keeps those things back. We're to trust him With our poverty and with our wealth, in our poverty and in our wealth. Thankful hearts, hearts that trust God and that are giving thanks to him, are hearts that can then boast in the Lord in all circumstances. Put another way, and to tie this back to what James says earlier, thankful hearts can count it all joy. Thankful hearts can count it all joy when you are in um, wealth or when you are in poverty when you are in wealth and persecuted, or when you're in poverty and persecuted. It is a thankful heart that can count it joy. Again, as I said, I think it's good to see this passage in light of the earlier things that James has said. Particularly, I want to um, meditate on this in light of what James says in verse 7. In verse 7, James warns about how we are to ask The Lord for wisdom. Back up to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you lack wisdom for understanding how to count it joy in the midst of trials, ask God. He will give you this wisdom. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And this is the, James moves immediately from this into the exhortation to the poor brother and the rich. So you could, I think you can read verses 9 and 10 a little bit like this. Um, Verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And then verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation in the midst of all those trials, and the rich in his humiliation in the midst of those trials. And so the warning then is to exalt, to boast in the exaltation, to boast in the humiliation, but not to be double-minded in it. To boast and seek the wisdom from God in faith, not being double-minded. When a poor Christian undergoes trials and persecution, what would be the temptation for the poor man? For the poor brother, he would be tempted to allow the material troubles to lure him away from Christ. Um, like the proverb says, if I am poor, I would be tempted to steal. I'd be tempted to break God's lot and profane God because of my poverty. A poor person, a poor Christian under persecution is going to be tempted to grasp for the material uh, stability that he doesn't have. Instead of turning to the Lord. Trusting in God in the face of trials does bring a promise that God will supply our lack, like James says in verse 4, but often not in the way that we might plan. Again, God uses the, the um, foolish things of the world to bring about his ends. God exalts by granting saving grace, and he exalts by bringing the believer to maturity through trials. The lowly brother, the the poor brother, needs to be reminded to boast in this and not to despair when trials come. When we are, again, I I appreciate the exhortation that in the main, we are not uh, the poor, broadly speaking, globally speaking, historically speaking. We are wealthy beyond measure. And yet, there are times where you are still faced with material difficulties, where you are faced with material struggles because of a relative poverty. And it's in those moments that you need to hear the exhortation from James that that faced with those trials, you are to exalt and boast in your exaltation. You are to boast in what God has done in and through you. And this is what keeps the lowly brother the poor brother, from despair when these trials come. On the other hand, when a rich Christian undergoes trials and persecution, he too would be tempted to compromise with Christ for the sake of his earthly treasures. Um, Somebody who is wealthy, um, in one sense, uh, has a lot of handles that the world can grab and use to manipulate the wealthy person. And so he needs to Uh, be reminded of the saving grace that was given to him entirely apart from his worldly accomplishments. For a wealthy person, grace is humbling. Understanding the grace of God is very humbling. And if the wealthy can boast in that humiliation, in that understanding that they are saved by grace through faith alone and not in any of their own accomplishments, then any threat to that wealth or to his standing or to his reputation is no bother to him because he knows that all of those things and even, James says, he himself will fade away like grass before the heat of the sun. His consolation is not in his riches. I want to look at one other passage related to this. Luke chapter 6. Jesus um, sets these things next to each other and there's a few things that are worth pointing out here. James, uh, Luke chapter 6, as you're turning there, uh, many commentators have noted that the language that James uses throughout his letter is in some ways more parallel to the teachings of Jesus than any of the other apostles in terms of the actual language and the analogies and the comparisons that he makes is very, very similar to the um, actual teachings of Jesus. If you look at uh, chapter 6, verse 20, I'll start, or verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. So on the one hand, again, rejoice in that reviling that comes from the world. Rejoice in it. Be exceedingly glad. Then verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. The temptation for the rich, again, or for the, um, and rich, again, doesn't necessarily have to only mean um, the, the amount of your, uh, your net worth. It, it can also mean your reputation, your respect in the community. Those who are wealthy in these ways, the temptation is to have your consolation be in those things. And Jesus pronounces a great warning against those who, are, who find themselves in that situation. When the poor are under fire, and they feel that they have no recourse, they must remember and trust in God's grace. When the rich are under fire, and they might be tempted to cling to an earthly safety net, they must remember and cling instead to God's grace. This is, I think this is part of James' point. For both the rich and the poor, boasting in the grace of God is their God-given shield against serving two masters. Remember, Jesus warns about the the danger of serving two masters, serving God and mammon. And we tend to to associate the service of mammon as just something that the wealthy or the rich are uh, tempted to. But that's not true. The poor are just as tempted to serve mammon instead of Christ. Right? The the poor and the rich both. The temptation for us all is to serve mammon, to serve uh, ourselves and the material uh, things that we can gain instead of relying on the grace of God. For both the rich and the poor, this boasting is a shield against this idolatry. And in fact, glorying in the grace of God is one of the greatest defenses for Christians against all manner of sin. Boasting in what God has done for you is, your, is one of your greatest weapons against the temptations that you faced. Um, Calvin talks about how if, if, uh, if a man understands the grace of God, that is the greatest deterrent for him of returning to his sin. Well, you know your own temptations. You know the temptations of your heart, those things that you continue to return to. If, if you find yourself in a situation where you uh, have a particular sin that besets you and that you continue to turn to and you can't get rid of it, It could be a sin of your mouth, it could be a sin of your heart, a sin of your hands, a sin of your mind. Whatever it is, probably at the root of it is a doubt or a misunderstanding of the grace of God. And one of the things that you should do is learn to boast in the grace that God has given to you. Because he saved you apart from anything that you accomplished. This is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to his people, is the exhortation to boast in what God has done as a means of overcoming your temptation and your sin. And really, this is the only thing worth boasting in. Jeremiah 9 says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this. In other words, this is the only thing worth boasting in. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord. The only thing worth boasting in is the knowledge of God. The only thing worth boasting in is understanding God. Understanding that he is God. That he is the Lord. And that he is your Lord. Faithful boasting is grounded then on a knowledge of God's grace. James, again, I want to, I want to draw your attention to the, uh, the unusual thing that James is exhorting Christians to do. We're used to, we're used to training ourselves and training our kids, don't boast. Right? Boasting is bad. We don't do that. And James is saying, no, you must boast. You must boast. But you must boast in the exaltation that God has given to you. You must boast in the humiliation that God has given to you. You must boast in God's grace. So, how do we learn to boast rightly like James calls us to? We're to boast rightly by remembering to ask God for the wisdom to boast in his grace in the face of our trials. Again, this is what James says earlier in uh, in the previous verses The poor and the rich alike must boast in God's grace and in nothing else. Jesus said that it was easier for a camel to thread its way through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, we, and some commentators like to take this and say Jesus was just giving an analogy. Really, it's, you know, there's this uh, you know, low tunnel that a camel had to, would have to get down on its knees and go through, and that's really difficult for a camel to do. Uh, no, I think Jesus was actually being literal. It would be easier for a camel to thread its way through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples ask an important question. Who then can be saved? How possible is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Trust in your, uh, trust in our wealth, trust in our material circumstances, trust in our reputation, trust in our social standing, all of these things can be a barrier to entering the kingdom of God. And I want to take one moment also, a little bit of a, another side note, one application for this. We are, I think we are more and more entering a time when, and we've seen this over the last few years, but entering a time when Christians are are despised, where they are put down, where they are mocked, where they are um, put to the outskirts, where they are no longer, um, Christians in many ways no longer hold the center of our society. That is going to, unless God is kind and grants great reformation and revival, and until he does that, it's going to continue that way. Christians will be more and more marginalized. One of the temptations for Christians in times like this is to begin to despise one another. One of the temptations, and the temptation is particularly for those who are wealthy in status, I'm not talking about necessarily material wealth, but wealthy in status in the world. Those who have a place at the table. Those who are, um, have a good reputation. It is very tempting to then turn and despise the Christians that are being marginalized. That are being put out. That are being persecuted. And I think James' exhortation here for us is important for us to consider we need to remember to, when we are persecuted, when we are marginalized, to rejoice in our exaltation, to boast in our exaltation, what God has done for us, but also to remember to boast in our humiliation, that God has given us all of these things, and not to hold on to our reputation um, over our relationship with our brother. To, to not hold on to our reputation if, um, because it, or, to, or to distance ourselves from our brothers and, but brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe have done things um, more boldly than we might want to or have done things maybe differently than we would want to. And they're being marginalized and we want to separate ourselves from them so that we don't get dirty. So our reputations don't get dirtied by being associated with them. And James' exhortation for people in that situation is, no, boast in your Humiliation. Boast in your humiliation that God has seen fit to associate you with those brothers and sisters in Christ. He's the one that has called you brothers and sisters with them. He's the one that has put you together with them. Rejoice and boast in that humiliation. I think this is the kind of thing that is going to be very important for us as a church body and for us more broadly as the church as we go forward in uh, the world that we live in in these coming years. But with all of this... uh, the question then is, if, if it is easier to, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, for those who are wealthy, again, in, in material things, in status, in reputation, to humble themselves before the Lord. Who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer is that it was impossible for men. This kind of thing is impossible for men. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, salvation for the rich is totally dependent on God's grace. And since there is no partiality with God, salvation for the poor is totally dependent on God's grace. this This is the way it is for all of us. The only way in which we can come before the throne of God, by which we can be saved, is through the grace of God. Through his grace to us, His grace over your sin. His grace that matters so much more than your wealth, than your poverty, than your good reputation, than your soiled reputation. God's grace covers all of that. And it's His grace alone that can bring us before Him. So who then can be saved? None. But for the grace of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.